Coming up next on Upstate's HealthLink on Air, a pair of researchers tell what they've learned about the importance of sleep during recovery from stroke. There is a large incidence of people with stroke that have sleep disorders. So that kind of led us to start exploring a little bit more about how sleep and stroke interact with each other. A psychiatrist discusses mass shootings and mental health. The key really is that when serious mental illness is adequately treated, um, there is little, if any, increased risk of violence. And a researcher shares the connection between electrical disturbances in the heart and in the brain. Yeah, the same mutation that was messing up electrical function in the brain was also messing up electrical function in the heart. This could be one of the causes for the high rate of unfortunately sudden death. All that, plus a visit from the Healing Muse, coming up next. This is Upstate Medical University's HealthLink on Air, your chance to explore health, science, and medicine with the experts from Central New York's only academic medical center. I'm your host, Amber Smith. Today, we'll talk with a psychiatrist about whether a link exists between mental health and violence. Then, a scientist shares what he's discovered about a heart rhythm disturbance known as Long QT syndrome. But first, we'll explore the importance of sleep during stroke recovery. From Upstate Medical University in Syracuse, New York, I'm Amber Smith. This is HealthLink on Air. Problems with sleep can worsen a person's health-related quality of life in the year after a stroke. Here to talk about their research in this area are Dr. George Falk, a professor of physical therapy in the College of Health Professions, and Dr. Karen Klingman, the associate dean and associate professor in the College of Nursing at Upstate. Welcome to you both. Hi, thank thanks, you. Amber. First, let me ask how you decided there was a need for evaluating the impact of sleep problems on post-stroke recovery. Oh, that's a good question. Um, I actually just started here at Upstate almost two years ago now, and my primary area of research and clinical practice and teaching is in working with people with stroke and how they recover. Um, I was fortunate when I first moved down here to Upstate uh, to meet Karen, who is our resident uh, sleep expert, and so we got to talking and I looked into this more and just found out how important sleep is um, after a stroke and that it has a potential to really impact uh, people's recovery and that there are, is a large incidence of people with stroke that have sleep disorders. So that kind of led us to start exploring a little bit more about how sleep and stroke interact with each other. So have you had patients with the complaint of, you know, I've ha I'm having trouble sleeping? Oh, yeah, definitely. It yep. comes up and, a lot. Yeah, and it, the thing that's challenging is it's that people with stroke often have sleep disorders before they've had their stroke. So sleep apnea is a common sleep disorder, and it actually can be a risk factor to have a stroke. And once you've had a stroke, you're at risk for developing sleep apnea. So you kind of get that vicious cycle there um, with how the sleep can impact your recovery after stroke. Um, another important aspect of it is that after a stroke, people are relearning to do motor skills, right? So they're relearning how to walk, how to use their arm and hand to get dressed and do other ADLs. And sleep is also very important to consolidate motor learning, just as it's important for consolidating memory. And so if you have a stroke and have a sleep disorder and you're recovering, then um, that sleep disorder may also impact your ability to learn new skills. And so this was kind of our first step into looking at in a large data set, how people um, may be affected after the stroke if they have sleep problems. Uh, you use the term ADL. What is oh, that? Yeah, yeah. Uh, that's uh, our acronym for activities of daily living. So oh. basic activities like uh, being able to dress yourself, being able to brush your teeth, um, use the restroom, uh, grooming, bathing, things like that. Well, tell me, how did you set up your study? 
Um, so we're kind of fortunate. This is actually a secondary analysis. So we actually have access to a large database from a large stroke study that was done previously. Um, and so that was one nice thing about that was that we have about 400 people who've had a stroke in this study that we analyzed. So that's a nice thing about it. The one drawback is that it, the study wasn't set up explicitly to look at uh, the impact of sleep disorder. So with the secondary analysis, there's some limitation to that just because of the way it was set up is that it wasn't set up on, in an ideal manner to look at sleep and recovery. So these 400 people, are is this people in central New York or people in America? What was the geographic? Oh, yeah. yeah, this was people from all over the country. Okay. Uh, in the United States. So it's five different centers that span from Florida to California and in between. And I'm assuming men and women are included? Yep. Yes. And what about the age breakdown? Um, the age breakdown, if I remember correctly, was uh, about the typical age of someone with a stroke, you know, someone in their 60s and 70s. Um, so it wasn't mainly older or slightly older adults, not younger adults with stroke. And did it specify this type of stroke? Uh, yeah, we were able to look at, you know, what are the different percentages of people that had an ischemic stroke that might have been caused by a blood clot versus a hemorrhagic stroke that was a bleed, uh, different locations of stroke in different areas of the brain. And so all those uh, demographic information was typical of people that generally have a stroke. So the, that was the nice thing about it with 400 people is that you get such a wide variety of people that it covers most of the typical people that have had a stroke. So these results can kind of hopefully be applied to the typical person with a stroke. So I'm imagining this giant database of 400 people and the two of you, are you going through one by one looking for any mention of a sleep disturbance or sleep apnea or insomnia? The reason we decided to use this data set is that they happened to ask the study subjects early on, did they have any problems with sleep? And if so, how much did they impact their quality of life? And so it's not very specific, um, but it is a good um, thermometer into seeing how sleep and stroke recovery are related. Um, sleep problems can result from a wide variety of sleep disorders or even just, um, you know, situational or environmental factors. Um, but, you know, if you don't tend to them and you don't have a sleep disorder, you can also develop one as a result if you don't tend to the sleep problems. And then, as George mentioned, you get into the vicious circle of um, sleep problems causing things like mood, you know, depression, um, lack of activity, lack of recovery, you can't get out into the community, you get more depressed, you don't sleep. So it's a vicious circle. It's really important to catch sleep problems early be before they come chronic if they're not already. Well, I want to ask you to explain sort of your findings, but first let me remind listeners this is Upstate's Health Link on Air. I'm your host, Amber Smith, talking with Dr. George Folk and Dr. Karen Klingman about how problems with sleep can worsen a person's health-related quality of life in the year after a stroke. So what would you, how would you summarize your findings from this study? So I think as Karen mentioned, the interesting thing was the way that we were able to identify sleep problems. So it was a self-report. So people answered a question about their sleep difficulties and whether or not it impacted their function. And we were able to look at that at multiple time points during the first year after their stroke. So at two months, six months, and 12 months after stroke, these questions were asked of the people. And then we were able to look at, was there a difference in their quality of life at those time points, depending if they reported having difficulties with their sleep versus not having difficulties with their sleep. And um, not too surprisingly, we believe, we found that the people who reported having sleep difficulties and that it impacted their function had poorer quality of life. So their self-reported ability to perform those activities of daily living that we talked about previously, 
um, their ability just to be mobile in their home and community, even their ability with communication, hand function, um, and emotion and memory were all uh, worse than the people that reported sleep difficulties. So it also shows just the wide impact of the sleep difficulties have after stroke. And when we talk about sleep difficulties, is this trouble falling asleep, trouble staying asleep, insomnia where you just can't get to sleep? What, I mean, what types of sleep difficulties are there? Well, um, in this study, we had no way of knowing because it was just, have you had problems with your sleep such as insomnia? And insomnia is one of those words that people associate not with necessarily a diagnosis, but with problems sleeping. So we have no way from this particular study to say um, which sleep disorders they may have had. But we have um, started, we have looked into the literature to see what kinds of sleep disorders people with stroke tend to have during their first year of recovery. And um, of course, obstructive sleep apnea, which Dr. Folk mentioned early on is um, the most publicized one, but there are also others um, such as restless legs syndrome, um, insomnia, um, circadian rhythm disruptions. Some of these exist before the person had a stroke. Does a stroke ever cause these to develop as sort of a side effect of the stroke? We, we don't really know, but we think so. That's part of what we aim to find out as we move through our overall research program. Um, yeah. Some of the risk factors for sleep disorders are known to be risk factors for stroke and vice versa. So we think, you know, maybe one doesn't cause the other, but both may arise at the same time. But um, again, some of the situational factors associated with recovering from stroke certainly could initiate a sleep disorder. And um, some of the areas, George, maybe you can speak to this, some of the areas of the brain that are damaged um, may also impact sleep. So we think there may be a physiological reason as well for sleep to be disrupted and maybe disordered following a stroke. Well, what do you recommend for people who are recovering from stroke and are having trouble sleeping? Do they do they need a, a sleep study? Do they need medication? I, I mean, what's what's the current thinking? That's a really great question. We we don't know. <laughs> There's very little in the literature about it. For obstructive sleep apnea, uh, it's so prevalent. Um, it almost seems like it would be um, um, remiss not to test someone following stroke for sleep apnea, um, or maybe maybe um, just to monitor them for um, the uh, downsides of having untreated obstructive sleep apnea. But there are also reasons to be careful as you move forward trying to treat obstructive sleep apnea following stroke, depending on which part of the brain has been impacted. So it's not clear cut, but I, I do think that probably most medical professionals are looking for obstructive sleep apnea. I don't think they're looking for the other less prevalent sleep disorders. Um, and then, you know, if they have one, uh, a lot of the treatments, well, at least for um, insomnia, the recommended treatment is a behavioral treatment called cognitive behavioral therapy for insomnia, CBTI, the I for insomnia, and that's a behavioral where you manage your thoughts and your bedtimes to so be sure that the time you spend in bed is time you spend asleep. For the other sleep disorders like restless leg syndrome, those can be treated by medications. Um, but again, that would have to be carefully monitored by the medical professional to make sure nothing interferes with anything else that's being treated at the time. Well, if I, if I hear you correctly, it's important for a patient to bring this to their physician's attention if they're, you know, in the year after stroke and they're struggling, you know, to sleep well because it impacts their ability to recover, right? Yes. Um, <laughs> another piece, too, I think with uh, Karen's previous research, I think it's important for healthcare providers to use screening tools to kind of help 
um, identify people who may be at risk or may already have some type of sleep disorder. And Karen's done some previous work on actually developing some screening tools, and there are other ones out there as well. So I think um, at a minimal, it would be good for healthcare professionals who are working with people with stroke to use some of these screening tools as a first step and then refer them to a sleep specialist or a stroke specialist um, for further diagnostic studies. What about right. someone who is more than a year out from their stroke? If they're in their second or third year after having had a stroke, if they're still having trouble sleeping, is it worthwhile to, to have that investigated? Oh, definitely. Yeah. I mean, what our data that we looked at only went out for a year, right? But it's likely that uh, someone's had a stroke. If they're having sleep difficulties, that could continue um, for a longer period after that one year. Um, and as Karen mentioned, that the sleep disorders, depending on which one they have, you know, can still be treated effectively, uh, even, you know, at any point in time. Well, you mentioned at the beginning when we started talking about some sleep disorders that are considered risk factors for stroke. So yeah. I want to ask you to go over those again, just so listeners have that with them. Uh, is sleep apnea, if you've got a, a sleep apnea issue, you're at higher risk for stroke? Is that correct? Yeah, I mean, I think that's the one that the literature is pretty strong supporting that if you have sleep apnea, uh, that is a risk factor for potentially having a stroke. Um, and um, I think the data show there's like almost uh, two thirds of people with stroke also have sleep apnea. That's what we've seen in the literature today. Well, very interesting. I want to thank both of you. Uh, thank you to Dr. George Folk, a professor of physical therapy in the College of Health Professions, and Dr. Karen Klingman, the associate dean and associate professor in the College of Nursing at Upstate. I'm Amber Smith for Upstate's podcast and talk show, HealthLink on Air. Up next on Upstate's HealthLink on Air, is there a link between mental health and violence? From Upstate Medical University in Syracuse, New York, I'm Amber Smith. This is HealthLink on Air. Is there a link between mental illness and violence? I'm talking today with Dr. Ronald Pies, a professor emeritus of psychiatry at Upstate and a clinical professor of psychiatry at Tufts University School of Medicine in Boston. He's researched this subject and has a paper in the journal Psychiatric Times called Moving Beyond Motives in Mass Shootings. Welcome back to HealthLink on Air, Dr. Pies. Thank you very much, Amber. So do I understand correctly that there's no good evidence linking mental illness and violence? So, Amber, the short answer is there is only a weak and qualified link between mental illness and violence. Uh, my uh, upstate colleague, uh, Dr. James Knoll, and uh, his colleague, Dr. George Annis, uh, estimate that the overall contribution of people with serious mental illness to violent crimes is only about 3%, a very small uh, percentage. And when you examine these crimes in detail, an even smaller percentage of them are found to involve uh, firearms. Uh, that said, uh, as um, Dr. Fuller-Torrey has shown, there is a link between untreated mental illness and violence. Uh, particularly when there is substance abuse involved. So uh, the key really is that when serious mental illness is adequately treated, um, there is little, if any, increased risk of violence. Interesting. Well, what about um, victims of violence? Are people with mental illness more likely to be victimized? Probably so. Uh, it's hard to get good data on this because we're heavily dependent on self-reporting. Um, so people are asked, have you had any uh, uh, instances in which you were the victim of violence in the last month, things of that sort. Uh, so you're dependent on self-reports. But most of the evidence suggests that uh, folks with psychiatric illness are much more likely to be victims of violence than 
uh, perpetrators of violence. Now, in terms of gun violence, do we know how many deaths by guns are murders versus how many are suicide? Well, actually, uh, most uh, uh, gun deaths in in this country uh, are, in fact, uh, suicides, um, which a lot of people don't realize. They think about uh, gun shootings and they think about homicides, but uh, something like uh, six in 10 uh, gun deaths in this country, uh, really an enormous percentage are uh, suicides. Um, and I know that we're going to be talking about mass shootings. Um, maybe I can just put that in perspective a bit, if that's okay. Yeah. How often is mental illness a factor in mass shootings? Well, first of all, let me just say that there's no consensus on the definition of mass shootings. So that's one problem in answering questions. But if we define mass shootings as incidents in which uh, four or more people are killed, uh, the FBI estimates that fewer than 1% of gun murders in this country occur in mass shootings. Uh, as I mentioned, most gun-related deaths in this country are actually suicides, uh, about six in uh, 10. Now, as far as mental illness and mass shootings, um, Dr. Noel and George Annis, uh, to whom I'm, I'm quite appreciative for their, their teaching on these issues, uh, they estimate that mass shootings by people with serious mental illness uh, represent less than 1% of all yearly gun-related homicides. And furthermore, a, a recent FBI study found that only about 25% of mass shooters ever received a diagnosis of mental illness. And only three of those uh, individuals had a diagnosis of a psychotic disorder. So this uh, popular idea of the crazed mass shooter or the psychotic killer, these are really, uh, for the most part, these are really myths. So when we think about mass shooters, and unfortunately there have been several in recent years in America, uh, are they generally premeditated? Do people plan out what they're going to do and, and go do it? Or do they just snap and react? Right. Good question, Amber. Uh, most mass shootings do involve advanced planning. And sometimes uh, it's very detailed and extensive planning. Um, you may recall the recent mass shooting in Nova Scotia, Canada, I think that was in April, um, where the shooter had actually created this fake um, RCMP, Royal Canadian Mounted Police car. Um, people thought, oh, he's, uh, or he was uh, claiming that this was a tribute to the uh, police. Well, it turned out it was, part of this really bizarre, elaborate plot he had uh, to engage in a mass shooting. So no, uh, people don't just snap and commit mass murder. Uh, also, many mass murderers uh, intentionally plan not to survive their own attacks and intend to commit suicide or uh, to be killed by the police after committing their crime. So the, the basic answer is no, people don't just snap. Generally, the mass shooters do quite a bit of planning. So are they doing this because they want attention or they wanna be remembered as having committed this horrible act of violence or what, what is the motivation? Well, the motives probably differ from shooter to shooter, and, and Dr. Noel and I have argued that uh, the media sometimes spend an excessive amount of time trying to figure out uh, the person's motive, which often doesn't get us very far. Uh, one thing we can say is it, it's not just killing for killing's sake. Um, many, if not most, uh, mass shooters as you implied, are seeking attention of some sort. I would call it notoriety. 
um, or even infamy. Uh, and unfortunately, in the age of the internet and social media, many mass shooters do wind up with a tremendous amount of publicity. And I think that that's exactly what they're looking for. This is Upstate's HealthLink on Air. I'm your host, Amber Smith, talking with psychiatrist Dr. Ronald Pies. Is there a profile for mass shooters? Well, there's no one size fits all profile of who carries these out, uh, Amber, but there is a very general profile for most mass shooters. Unfortunately, it's so broad that it isn't really useful predictively. Just in terms of demographics, uh, the overwhelming majority of mass shooters, about 95% are male. And that's a long, long story that we probably won't have time to go into. Uh, But it's very unusual to find a female mass shooter. Uh, I actually saw one study looking at um, 113 mass shootings in this country between 1982 and uh, 2020. Only three of those were carried out uh, by women. Now, in terms of psychological profile, um, we really don't have good clinical data since, uh, as you might expect, very few of these mass shooters have been evaluated by mental health uh, professionals. But the evidence that we do have suggests that uh, many shooters fit a profile that uh, I call the three R's, uh, rage, resentment, and revenge. Um, And in addition, uh, mass killers tend to share a number of uh, psychological and behavioral characteristics, uh, some degree of depression, uh, resentment, which I mentioned, social isolation. They tend to externalize blame. In other words, everything is everyone else's fault. Uh, They often have a fascination with uh, violent entertainment uh, videos and the like. And often they have a very keen interest in weapons and weaponry, uh, a really kind of a fixation or obsession with uh, firearms. So that's a very general profile. And as you can see, that would probably identify thousands and thousands of people who, who do not become mass shooters. Right, exactly. Are, well, are there risk factors that we can be on the lookout for then that would raise the risk of violence in general? Yes, uh, there are risk factors for violence in general. Um, And the most important risk factor uh, for future violence is uh, a history of previous violence. Uh, That's probably the strongest predictor. If you've done it in the past, um, you're at a high risk for doing it again. In addition, we know that um, there are several risk factors involved in Uh, violence or violent crime in general. So we're not necessarily here talking about mass shootings. Uh, We could be talking about an assault, for example. Uh, So alcohol and drug use increase the risk of violent crime by as much as sevenfold. And this is even true among people who do not have a uh, history of mental illness. Binge drinking raises the risk for serious violence. Uh, Other risk factors include a history of having been abused or bullied, uh, witnessing violence between parents, which is interesting, as sort of modeling that behavior. Uh, I mentioned a preoccupation with weapons or death, uh, people who have in general poor control of their anger, and people who are socially isolated. All of those are risk factors for serious violence in general. What about, are there red flags that would predict imminent directed violence? How, if you know someone with some of these risk factors, is there something that would signal to you that, you know, they're about to do something? Uh, Yes, uh, there are. Um, You know, this this goes against the idea that people just snap. Um, Actually, perpetrators of mass shootings often display some warning signs before their violence such as engaging in recent acts or threats of violence, or uh, violating a protection order, for example. Uh, Another warning sign is what's called leakage of intent. This is when a future shooter intentionally or unintentionally uh, starts spilling the beans, starts revealing clues to a third party. Like, hmm, you know, I've been having these thoughts about uh, going after that school. Uh, And surprisingly, people will actually share these ideas uh, with other people. Um, So those uh, warning 
coping signs uh, may present opportunities for interventions that, that could actually uh, save lives. And, and some data show that actually in more than half of mass shootings, a shooter exhibited at least one uh, dangerous warning sign uh, prior to the shooting. Wow. Well, what's the difference between someone who was bullied at school, who has a substance abuse history, and who's romantically rejected but doesn't kill people, and someone who does? Yeah, that's a great question, uh, Amber. I don't know that we have a clear answer to that. Now, clearly, only a small fraction of people who meet the profile that you just outlined wind up killing or shooting people. There are probably dozens of factors that shape the trajectory for uh, any given person. Uh, the the FBI's study of active shooters, which is a little different than mass shooters, but it's it's similar. Uh, they found that the presence of a grievance is an important factor. Uh, and it, uh, the FBI report actually identified various grievances in, in about 79% of the active shooters, uh, usually in the realm of interpersonal or employment action. So somebody um, got fired recently, they have a grudge against their employer. Um, that may uh, set them up uh, in addition to some of the other personality factors that we talked about earlier, rage, resentment, social isolation, tendency to externalize blame, et cetera, et cetera. So all of those uh, probably affect the trajectory for a, a certain percentage of the people who, who fit the profile that you just gave. Do you see mass shooter copycats? Or do they try to outdo one another? Uh, I think there's pretty good evidence that they do. Um, there's a lot of evidence that some mass shooters have made very careful studies of their predecessors uh, in a kind of admiring way, almost like uh, a cult figure uh, might be admired. And um, some of the mass shooters really seem to want to outdo one another, kind of be the biggest name in the history books, which is a real problem because they get so much publicity. With the stress and pressure everyone seems to be under related to the pandemic, are these conditions that will potentially fuel would-be mass shooters? Yeah, I don't think we know whether mass shootings per se are likely to increase as a reaction to the pandemic, uh, Amber, but uh, the Brady Center uh, is reporting that gun sales are surging across the country, uh, apparently in response to fears related to the coronavirus. Um, so uh, given that people are in uh, isolation, quarantine, uh, and uh, Given that marital stress and family stress is increasing at this time, I think that is actually kind of a worrying uh, finding. Well, thank you so much to Dr. Ronald Pies. He's a professor emeritus of psychiatry at Upstate and a clinical professor of psychiatry at Tufts University School of Medicine in Boston. I'm Amber Smith for Upstate's podcast and talk show, HealthLink on Air. A scientist explains the connection he found between electrical disturbances in the heart and in the brain. Next on Upstate's HealthLink on Air. From Upstate Medical University in Syracuse, New York, I'm Amber Smith. This is HealthLink on Air. Today, I'm talking with a scientist who investigates electrical disturbances in the brain and heart. Dr. David Auerbach is an assistant professor of pharmacology at Upstate. Welcome to HealthLink on Air, Dr. Auerbach. Thank you. It's a pleasure to join us. So you were a graduate pharmacology student at Upstate from 2004 to 2011, and then you worked at the University of Michigan Medical School and the University of Rochester Medical Center before you joined the staff at Upstate last year. When did you start studying electrical disturbances in the brain and heart? Yes, um, basically my interest and training began, as you mentioned, during graduate school at Upstate here. I had the fortunate opportunity to work for one of the real pioneers in the field of cardiac arrhythmia, uh, research the electrical disturbances in the heart here, that we were trying to understand the uh, causes for them. And that was with, um, Jose Halife, and uh, he had a large team of um, 
investigators with many different areas of expertise. And then during that period, uh, we moved to the University of Michigan where I finished up my graduate training but stayed an upstate student. Uh, and then ultimately moved on to a new laboratory, Laboratory Lori Isom for my postdoctoral fellowship. And that's where I really initiated uh, some of my particular area of you know, interest in looking outside of what I call the classic organ of interest. Uh, we were studying a model of epilepsy, you know, patients with severe forms of seizures, you know, these which are due to similar to the heart, but electrical disturbances in the brain there. And in this model, someone was studying the brain, and uh, I studied the heart, and we were able to show that you know, the same mutation that was messing up electrical function in the brain was also messing up electrical function in the heart. This really helped uh, advance the field and people's understanding that you need to look outside the classic organ of interest, and um, this could be one of the causes for the high rate of, unfortunately, sudden death in certain forms of epilepsy. When you say classic organ of interest, is that the brain you're talking about? Sure. So uh, in uh, certain diseases, you know, everyone has always kind of studied, um, you know, where the, it was first demonstrated. For example, uh, during my postdoctoral fellowship, this was a severe form of epilepsy. So everyone was studying the brain there. And uh, I, you know, looked outside this classic organ, the brain, and looked thus, you know, in the heart. Uh, but then during my time at the University of Rochester, I studied a classically studied cardiac disease called long QT syndrome. Uh, and, um, using a clinical database, actually, was able to demonstrate that not only were these patients with long QT syndrome developing electrical disturbances in their heart in the form of arrhythmias, which has been well established, we also found that they were also developing electrical disturbances in their brain in the form of seizures. Well, I want to ask you a lot more about that. Um, long QT syndrome, though, uh, I, I want to have you explain that. And from what I understand, um, the QT refers to some tracings on an EKG. It has something to do with the electrical activity of the heart, right? Exactly. So the, the QT interval is the time from electrical activation in the lower part of your heart, the ventricles, to the uh, recovery, uh, you know, of electrical activity, and so importantly, the electrical of the, a activity. Little segment of the heartbeat, then. Exactly, it's the time from electrical activation to electrical recovery, you know, in the heart there, and importantly, that electrical activity is what triggers the heart to contract. So, unless we have the coordinated electrical activation and recovery in the whole heart, um, you know, we will not have adequate pumping of blood uh, in the heart, you know, is, due to these arrhythmias. Is this a, a, a problem that people are born with? I mean, would a, would a baby, would you find out that you have this as a baby? Sure. So um, a little bit of the history behind it here. Initially, um, people were diagnosing it purely upon the EKG. They would see that as the name implies, QT prolongation on the EKG. Uh, uh, but then uh, in the mid-90s and into the early 2000s, you know, when a lot of genetic uh, work um, you know, took off, we then began being able to map some of these um, diseases that were uh, diagnosed by the EKG now based upon genetic testing. Uh, so long QT syndrome is due to mutations uh, in um, genes that encode um, ion channels or uh, proteins that interact with the ion channel. These ion channels sit on the membrane there and, uh, as the name implies, pass ions back and forth, and that's what triggers or sustains the electrical activity in the heart there. Is so there... long QT syndrome... Can, sorry, can be due to uh, genetic, uh, can be diagnosed via genetic means or through the EKG. Are there signs or symptoms? Would a, how would a person feel if this was happening to them, if they had a long QT syndrome? 
Sure. Um, you likely would not feel any symptoms due to the QT prolongation, yet um, if an unfortunate uh, case arose where you developed a, an arrhythmia, you know, that can you know, lead to loss of consciousness, um, you know, a, a feeling of erasing of your heart, or in the most horrible cases, and sometimes is the first demonstration, you know, is sudden death. Um, you know, wow. the, you know, cardiac arrhythmia is a leading cause of sudden death. This is Upstate's HealthLink on air. I'm your host, Amber Smith, talking with Dr. David Auerbach about his research into electrical disturbances of the heart and brain. Now, you've described what this does to the heart. Are people with long QT syndrome, are they at greater risk for seizures? Sure. So um, while I was at the University of Rochester, I um, looked at this. Um, but my training was always, you know, in, at the basic science level in animals or cellular models here. Um, and I wanted to extend my research program uh, to take it to the patient level and use uh, patient results to help fuel um, my results that I could then bring back to the bench there. And University of Rochester has a really neat um, database available. It's called the Long QT Registry, and it includes over 22,000 people. And we have really detailed um, information about these patients. And uh, in that database, we showed that uh, patients who had genetic mutations that are associated with or cause Long QT syndrome also were at an increased risk of developing electrical disturbances in the brain in the form of seizures. So yes, patients with long QT syndrome, um, our results suggest that they are at an increased risk of seizures as well. Yet, um, this is something that's uh, been more anecdotal in the field, and we were the first to really take at a large database type level. Uh, but there's a lot of work still to be done to really confirm that. And that's what my research program is exploring at Upstate. So the electrical activity you talk about in the heart and the brain, in this situation, is it the same electrical activity? Is it connected? Sure. So uh, there is a uh, electrical connection between the brain and the heart in the autonomic nervous system. So that's one area that we're exploring. Also, another uh, hypothesis that we're testing right now is is that same mutant channel that's expressed in the heart that's messing up electrical function in the heart also present in the brain and messing up electrical function there. Can you tell me about the long QT syndrome model that you created? Can it be used to predict which patients are most at risk for sudden death from heart problems or, or seizures? Sure. So we have an animal model that... Uh, Unlike a smaller mouse or rat models, we have a larger animal model here uh, that uh, mimics the same cardiac electrical activity that's seen in people. Uh, and what we did is we went into the precise genetic code of this animal here and tweaked it just like, or mutated, just like as seen in people here. And using this uh, model, we're able to um, get recordings from these animals, just like, you know, if a patient came into, you know, where you can get EEG, which are electrical activity, electrical activity recordings in the brain, as well as EKG recordings, electrical activity recordings in the heart there. And we can study the effects that this uh, mutation that's seen in people uh, has upon electrical activity in the heart and the brain. Also, we're able to test various uh, drugs. Uh, uh, that may be uh, helpful, you know, in these people to help prevent these arrhythmias or seizures. Uh, and ultimately, it, it helps uh, examine uh, the true effects that this mutation has and whether this mutation can directly or indirectly cause arrhythmias or seizures. So that's something you're still working on. I mean, you're going to, it sounds like, devote your career to this. Absolutely. Um, absolutely. I, 
uh, fortunately secured uh, grant funding early in my career to generate this annual model that I foresee being such a valuable tool, um, not only for my research program, but to advance the field as well. As you know, in the field right now, there is still a fair amount of controversy of whether patients with long QT syndrome are in fact developing seizures because you know, an arrhythmia and a seizure both can lead to a loss of consciousness. Uh, so there's you know, still some questions here, but with this model, we're able to really examine the underlying causes or mechanisms for this to really nail it down. Well, it sounds like if you, if you figure out the underlying cause, maybe there'll be a way to come up with a treatment that kind of tackles both, right? Absolutely. Yeah, we really want to, you know, advance our ability to diagnose it, you know, to, you know, whether to suggest that, you know, cardiologists and neurologists need to be sitting around the same table uh, in discussing and managing these patients, as well as, you know, developing new therapeutics, you know, whether it be devices or medications to help prevent these events. Can you tell us about the project you have underway that involves wearable technology to detect cardiac arrhythmia markers in patients with epilepsy? Sure. Um, you know, everyone's very interested in wearable technology right now. You know, it's, it enables you uh, to get continuous recordings, and that's what is of the most uh, interest and value to me is that, for example, if you go into you know, your cardiologist or your family practice physician and they do you know, an EKG recording from you, that that's under a resting condition. You're sitting in the exam room, they get the recording from you, it's about 10 seconds long. Uh, but with wearable technology, we're able to get continuous, theoretically 24 hours, seven day a week, 365 day a year recordings from you. Uh, and uh, our wearable technology, what we're looking at is not only to get uh, recordings of like your heart rate, which you might get from your wearable, but to get the actual EKG recording, as well as your respiration, your activity, your temperature, um, you know, your, um, the amount of oxygen that's in your blood, your oxygen saturation, you know, which may help us to look, you know, take a more multi-system uh, approach to understanding these diseases here on a continuous level here so we can understand are there any potential markers that may predict whether uh, you're at a high risk of developing one of these uh, horrible lethal events here uh, and also uh, what you know what is causing what in terms of you know the timeline between each of these multi-system changes Wow. Well, it's fascinating work. I, I want to thank you so much to Dr. David Auerbach, an assistant professor of pharmacology at Upstate. I'm Amber Smith for Upstate's podcast and talk show, HealthLink on Air. And now... Deirdre Nealon, editor of Upstate Medical University's Literary and Visual Arts Journal, The Healing Muse, with this week's selection. Pam Freeman is a poet and lyricist from Skinny Atlas, New York. Here is her poem, The Stunning, Seize Me Beautifully, a Cohen in Five Acts. One, we take our lessons where we find them, find our love where it takes us, catch a glimpse in the dim glass faintly. What doesn't matter is what breaks us. I'm not beautiful and never will be. Still, she sees me beautifully. Two, you could quarry desire from the paperback bin, mirror your worth in a baking tin, pawn your ring for a dolkin shield, wish for a tongue to say how you feel. I'm not beautiful and never will be. Still, she sees me beautifully. Who saves the rescuer from himself? Who steals the treasure? the thief hid too well. Who hears the secret the thunder tells? Who sells the pilgrim a road map to hell? Now share a cup with one accord, 
bear a blessing you can't afford, declare a gospel of just one word, spare the outlaw who guards the herd. I'm not beautiful and never will be, still she sees me beautifully. Four, the music will heal what it understands. The plague will be passed among clapping hands. The rhythms will guide our leaderless band as we dance until we're too weak to stand. Then the veil will lift to reveal yet another. The shadow will yield the night's true color. The glass will unseal the reflections it covers. God, the mother, sister, lover. I'm not beautiful and never will be. Still, she sees me beautifully. Five, giver, receiver, destroyer, believer, explainer, complainer, sneak and seeker, crooning lullabies, lies. She commands the tides, labors and lusts, has her own past, surprise, honors and shames, afflicts and sustains, breathes in the space between body and name, knowing all, knowing best, almighty pest, drowning her litter of souls in her flame. No, I'm not beautiful and never will be. Still, she sees me beautifully. This has been Upstate's HealthLink on Air, brought to you each week by Upstate Medical University in Syracuse, New York. Next week on HealthLink on Air, a scientific look at retinal regeneration. If you missed any of today's show or for more consumer health podcasts, visit our website at healthlinkonair.org or do a podcast search for the phrase HealthLink on Air. I'm Amber Smith, thanking you for listening.